Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Pat Crowley to the show. Pat Crowley is founder and CEO of Chapul Farms, building and scaling modular insect farms. His diverse career path has had a singular focus of ensuring the food and water availability to future generations, with previous positions as a climate modeler, hydrologist, and agronomist for state and federal agencies. He founded Chapul, the first edible cricket protein company in the U.S. in 2012, as a way to create a pull-through demand for the growth of the insect agricultural industry. This path led him to an appearance on ABC's Shark Tank, securing an investment from Mark Cuban into a brand that reached national distribution as the first of its kind. Addressing today's growth needs of the industry, Chapul Farms' mission is to increase biodiversity within agriculture, leveraging insects as a gateway to beneficial microbial ecosystems that are essential to regenerative farming and most terrestrial ecosystems on the planet. Pat? How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you, Raj. Pat, thank you for joining. Pat, where are you located? I'm currently based in McMinnville, Oregon, in the Willamette Valley. How's the weather up there? Oh, it's spectacular. Yeah, just uh, magical summers here in the Pacific Northwest. And so embracing every little drop of sunlight here while while it comes. (laughs) Well, I think I'm a little envious. It's going to be 100 degrees of just hot, hot, hot in Dallas today. Mm, mm. Well, I'm from Phoenix, Arizona originally, so I appreciate (laughs) you. You made the right move. (laughs) So, Pat, I'd like to open my show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? I think one thing that's interesting that uh, is pertinent in in some levels to what we're doing now is I've I've worked as a a whitewater rafting guide um, in in previous lives and in, in one particular experience is, is through the Grand Canyon. I think that's um, helped uh, ground a lot of the perspective on on some of the the large scale vision of what we're trying to do. And that you in these river trips, you you cut through the the layers of geology on on of life on this planet, history of life on this planet. So it, it helps get what we we call a, a geologic perspective of of life on this planet. It helps grounds a lot of the the day-to-day uh, trials and tribulations of, of project development. So it's interesting you say that because I had the opportunity to visit Zion National Park last October, and they have a river trek, which ended up to be, I don't know, 10, 14 miles. We were actually walking up the river and then back down the river through these geological formations. And I was having similar conversations with friends of mine, just, you know, imagining how old these rock formations are. And when you get up close to, you know, some of these rocks and the size, they're just huge. And 
just makes you like put things into perspective regarding your size, not only, you know, here in the US, but when it comes to the world too. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, we, we started the company in, in Utah. So I'm very familiar with, uh, with Southern Utah and, and the landscape down there. It's un, unparalleled. It's like another planet, yeah, beautiful area. Also, I'd be remiss not to ask you regarding something interesting and Shark Tank. Oh, that's true. I was on Shark Tank. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. I love how the, I love that how that's an afterthought to the Grand Canyon, though. It's beautiful. <laughs> well, actually, that's they're they're related. Um, I I was invited to to come on on Shark Tank. We we applied and I was invited to to come on it, but they scheduled me for a trip or for the an airing at the same time I was doing a Grand Canyon trip, and it was going to be the first trip I worked with my with my wife we were both going to be in the grand canyon together such a magical place and i i said oh unfortunately i i, I can't make it then and they they were dumbfounded they said <laughs> I, I don't think you understand like this is shark tank and i in terms of, i don't think you understand this is the grand canyon <laughs> but but ultimately they were able to change the air date they you know we hung up the call and it was unfortunate and you know the next day they called and said Hey, we were able to rearrange some things and, and thankfully we can bring you in. So I ended up finishing that trip. And then within less than 24 hours, I went from you know, 14 days completely disconnected from any internet or, or Wi-Fi or TV or, or money and, and going directly into the studios to, to film in this concrete jungle with all these lights and cameras for, for Shark Tank. And it was a, a quite a 180 of, of universes. <laughs> so I think that it reflects on your priorities. And I really appreciate that. Um, and it seems to have worked out. You know, you were on Shark Tank for Chapul Farms, which I want you to give an overview of here in a moment. But tell me about those priorities for a minute. Yeah, I, even before, I, I think the priorities stem from a career path that I started before Chapul uh, and Chapul Farms, and, and before any any um, dream of Shark Tank, et cetera. And, and I I pursued. I, I became more interested in environmental sciences and essentially the the trajectory of of humans' impact on the planet. And so I went back to school to receive a master's of science in watershed hydrology uh, to to help uh, hone my skills and, and knowledge base for contributing to uh, more sustainable life on this planet. You know, at the time, I, I was viewing water as one of the most significant areas that, that I could contribute. And, and so that was my career path was looking out you know, 50, 100 years of, of how we can benefit future generations, having a more livable future. Um, and it was through that lens of, of really water and, and agricultural consumption of water, the primary consumer of water on this planet that uh, shifted my focus to, to the viability of insects. And really the, the first company I started was, was Chapul and we call it Chapul Foods at this point. And that was a, a consumer packaged product with, with cricket flowers, the first introduction of a, a packaged product in the U S that had uh, insects as a, a form of protein. And it was really a, a marketing campaign for the viability of insect agriculture and, and wanted to create a, a market demand and a, and a pull through demand for the development of, of a more sustainable supply chain. And, and at the time I was viewing it just in terms of resources in versus res, resources out of the water and, and land inputs versus uh, caloric outputs. 
Um, but now the the layers of the onion as they they peel off the the story becomes much more rich in the regenerative potential of of insect agriculture and and how it can be much more of a systems integrator, not just a, a simple uh, linear input input versus output, but how it can benefit you know, life on this planet. And so the the pivot that we've done on Shark Tank was the the energy bar company to pool foods uh, with the cricket flower that we had created. And now we're, we're stepping into Chapool Farms, where we're building out the infrastructure for, for large insect agriculture to support several markets, not just the edible insect space, but also going into animal feeds and, and bioremediation of, of, uh, of our country soil. So you mentioned 50 to 100 year, 100 year outlook. I don't meet a lot of people who take that long of a view on life or in the world, where does that come from? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. Um, yeah, I, I was always, I was brought up with parents that were, were Peace Corps volunteers and kind of service to others was incorporated into to my childhood. And um, I, a lot of the reading that I did growing up um, was a, a lot of anthropology and, and looked at you know, human history. So looking back at our past, you know, the longer, view you, you take from behind us, I think helps with the forecasting your, your view into the future. And so I think that look into the past of where we've come from helps generate a, a longer term perspective on where we're headed. Um, and yeah, it, yeah, just a lot of work in, in Arizona was actually my first cur- uh, job out of grad school. And I worked for Arizona Department of Water Resources and we were we were charged with looking at you know the long term supply of, of water in the second most arid state in the country, and I was fortunate enough to to be able to work on some of the Native American reservations and um, gain some some wisdom and glean some wisdom and some of their perspectives on um, uh, that that longer term connection to the generations that you'll never know. Uh, one of the one of the projects I actually worked on was quantifying the agricultural water consumption of the Hopi Indian Reservation, and and within the reservation is the the longest continually inhabited settlement in all of North America, and it, you know it's been there for more than eight hundred years. This little uh, community, and so they've they have that perspective, and you can tell, and they share it with you sometimes if you get to if you take the time to listen um, of of seeing cultures come and go, you know, they saw the Spanish come and go, they saw the, the Mormons come through the area and go, and it's just such harsh living conditions and harsh agricultural conditions that um, they they were able to adapt in that area and, and have uh, benefited from that long-term perspective. And so um, I, I think that's that's certainly some of what helps drive the the motivation for kind of plotting through the, the challenges of uh, short-sighted entrepreneurial and capital systems to develop long-term, longer-term benefits to to those that will come after us. And can you tell me what that area is called, where the longest-running settlement, the eight hundred years? What, what's the name of that? Yeah, Oribi, O R A I B I. Yeah. Thank you for that. I'm, that's my own personal research. Yeah, yeah. In, in the, I mean, it was an incredible project that I worked on, and. Uh, their system of agriculture has adapted to that area in those conditions. I mean, it's incredibly arid and but extreme weather conditions, very hot and then very cold and 
early frosts and high winds and their but the corn that they grow their their culture is adapted with it involved with it and, and so their their ceremonial um traditions are are intricately woven into their style of agriculture and um they it's it's yeah it's unlike any other form of agriculture i'd ever seen and um it, it again just had that longer term vision that i'd like to help implement into some of the or, or address some of the short-sighted uh trajectory that we've gone on for our our mass yeah global agricultural systems right now which sounds like they've developed a level of resiliency and i think taking that view and coming back to chipotle farms for a moment you mentioned the cricket powder or the cricket bars on Shark Tank, and then a larger overview of Chapul Farms. Can you give me the broader vision for Chapul Farms? Yeah. The, in summary, currently we're we're building and scaling modular insect farms, and the purpose of that, from a, a bigger perspective, is is to do a hundred and eighty degree turn from the alarming trajectory of, of loss of biodiversity on this planet. So. How can we insert biology back into our food system um, to help reverse these trends of, of mass extinction and, and loss of biodiversity within our soils, within our overall ecosystem, within the planet, within and then certainly within our agriculture? We're, we're headed down this trajectory of, of um, loss of diversity of, of particular plants that we're growing in agriculture, but also the, the species diversification within those um, limited plant supplies. And so, you know, when we have four main species been trending towards fewer and fewer uh, crops that we grow, and within those, we're trending towards less and less genetic diversity as well. And that that's very alarming, to say the least, from overall sustainability as well as risk management for changes that are inevitable on this planet, whether they're climate, political, etc. So speaking of species, besides crickets, what other insects are you farming? Yeah, at this point, Chabool Farms, we're we're focusing on black soldier fly. And that's the that's the species that is really um one of the species carrying the torch right now for their regenerative potential. And, and one of the critical pieces of that is their availability of feedstocks or the feedstocks that are available um, to feed them. They, they can consume essentially inedible foods to human um, in an inedible plant material. So on this planet, our, our agriculture, we have a, an average harvest index of, I think it's like 50%. And so that means 50% of the plant material that we harvest, only half of that is edible. And so what do we do with the other inedible? And, and some species have a, have a higher demand for quality nutrition, but black soldier fly are just incredible at the wide range of plant materials that they consume. And so previously, um, determine waste streams, if you will, that end up in landfill can now be diverted into black soldier fly farms. And, and so that's what we're really targeting is uh, what, what are the organic sources of material that are within our agricultural landscape right now that are going into landfills and how can we divert that into black soldier fly farms and then recapitalize on all this energy and, and re reintroduce it into the cyclical nature of, of nutrient cycling. 
And what are some of the use cases for the black soldier flies? Yeah, the, currently they're the what we have approval in the United States for regulatory approval is poultry and um, aquaculture, and specifically salmonids, so salmon and, and trout. And so that's what we're focusing on. Um, but pet food is is probably in the pipeline. It is in the pipeline as well. But currently we're focusing on, on poultry and aqua feed. And, and so just honing in on aqua feed, we've, we've outlined very aggressive plans for aquaculture development in the United States, but at the same time, the large aqua feed players are saying there's just not enough of a supply chain to support these aggressive development plans. And, and the industry is desperate for for feed alternatives at this point. And insects are really proving to be a, a very viable leading case for being an alternative to the primary inputs of, of fish meal into aquaculture. And, and of course, fish meal is in the United States, at least 100% imported and um, has its own environmental impacts that you could uh, dive into in terms of fish in versus fish out. Because it, it, It's currently anywhere from four to five pounds of, of ocean-caught fish go into one pound of, of fish meal that then go into feeding uh, aquaculture. So we're, we're focused on how can we recapitalize these agricultural waste streams, turn it into insect protein, and then have that support aquaculture growth, which is currently not only in the United States, but globally the fastest growing food production system on the planet. And can you walk us through a life cycle or a farm cycle of a black soldier fly? Sure. Yeah. I, I always love this question because it always throws me for a loop of where to start. And I, I think that's indicative of, of the, you know, the circular nature of, of everything that we're trying to do. <laughs> Uh, and so let's just start at the, um, at the egg stage. And so, uh, flies, the, the black soldier fly lives for, as of, as in, in its fly state lives for about four days. And in that state, it doesn't have a mouth. It doesn't eat while it's a fly. All it does is, is lay eggs and, and reproduce. And so, um, that's one of the reasons why it's, it's considered a beneficial insect and, uh, is that they're, they're not subject to, you know, spreading. They're not a vector for, for virus and, uh, other contaminants. Um, and and so essentially it, it lays its eggs within those four days. And so we take the eggs and then we, we put them in a nursery and, and develop them to a neonate stage in a couple of days. And then we take those neonates and we, we introduce them to the, the feed that they'll be consuming for their next stages of development, which is their larva stage. And so as a larva stage, they'll, they'll consume these feeds uh, anywhere from you know, five to, to 15 days. And then we harvest the larva and we separate them from the material in their their manure, if you will, is the technical term is frass, and uh, and then we let about five percent of those go to the fly state, and then they'll they'll lay eggs for the next generation. And so one of the really key, I, I think, a, a key way to view insects is we're essentially microbe farmers, and in black soldier fly and the larva are just the the superorganism, the host to entire ecosystem of, of beneficial microbes that have evolved together to play this critical role of, 
uh, biocomposter on the planet. As the in nature, the black soldier fly, you know, which is native to the United States, will will lay its egg in the ground where biomass is falling to the ground, and they they process that material and they they play host to these beneficial microbes that then um, go into our soil, and and you have all these beneficial bacteria and fungi that that fix nitrogen and continue to create. Um, or facilitate mineral uptake to plants, and so just a, a, a an essential role in in nature, natural ecosystems. And so there's there's no reason, and it's and it's in fact absurd that they're not a part of our agricultural landscape when they have evolved to do this for millions of years. And so that that's essentially what we are as microbe farmers. But insects are the midwives for these microbes into our rehabilitate our soil as well as. Um, and then on on the larva side, when the animals eat them, there we're also seeing incredible uh, immunological benefits to the animals that eat them, whether those are chickens or, or fish. You know, just just like we're uncovering with the the human microbiome, you have a, a healthier gut microbiome. Your your immune system is healthier, and you're going to be less susceptible to the disease. And so, for example, in chickens, we we've seen you know, up to a ninety percent. Uh, reduction in susceptibility to to foul typhoid when when you introduce black soldier fly into their larva and it's 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 really incredible and, and groundbreaking science but at the same time it's well you you feed a bird what it evolved eating insects and it's it's going to be healthier <laughs> and so it's it's both very very elementary as well as you know on the cutting edge of of what our understanding of of the role of of microbes on this planet is. But that makes sense. So you separate the larva from the frass, you take a percentage of the larva, and then you grow them back into flies, allow them to become flies again. Without giving away trade secrets, how does the larva become, let's say, aquaculture feed? And second question or follow-up, what do you do with the frass? Yeah, I think the, the frass is one of the most exciting components of it. it uh, that goes right back into the soil. Uh, and, and so if we're looking at a 14 day life cycle, that, that plant biomass comes into our system and then 14 layers potentially is going right back into the soil. And we, we have, there's been studies showing that if you, if you take that biomass and you put it through a black soldier fly farm versus, you know, next best case scenario of aerobic composting, you'll see up to a 70% reduction in carbon-based emissions by having it pass through a, a black soldier fly farm as opposed to composting because there's there's essentially no methane production associated with the insect uh, consumption of that material. Uh, so, so the frass goes right back into the soil. And then uh, the larva itself, there's there's lots of different research projects happening now with, with the various forms that, that the larva take. And so one way is to simply just dry it out, reduce the moisture content, and then then feed it directly as a, a dried larva to to poultry or uh, even in some cases aquafeed. We have a farm and we actually work with a orphanage in, in Tanzania that they have a, a regenerative farm there that they raise black soldier fly on their their food scraps and then they they feed the the flies once they've been dried out directly into their their tilapia farm. Um, that they have on site, and then that's dramatically increased the the quantity of protein in their diet. Diving into more technical, you can 
you can do more industry standard or historically industry standard methods of, of separating the protein and creating a protein meal and then separating the lipids and having a, a lipid oil as a product. And then uh, another, so essentially you can separate the larva into three things, the protein, create a protein meal, the lipid oil, and then also the, the chitin and the exoskeleton of, of the larva. And, and that's an incredible biopolymer um, that can be used as a, a bioplastic in the, in the future. And um, it's a really high value uh, pharmaceutical grade um, uh, product. Once you convert the chitin into chitosan, it goes into um, like a jaw replacement, for example, it has really tremendous uh, antifungal and antibacterial elements. That really is amazing. For those of us that don't have the opportunity to see a farm like this, can you paint a picture of like how big is a farm like this? How many flies do you have or how much larva are you able to grow? Just kind of give us an idea. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, that there's a wide range of estimates, but it's it's anything more. It's anything from like 500 to, to 1,000 times more efficient in terms of land use versus protein compared to soy. Uh, so you can raise these, there's, there's projects happening in, in just a shipping container. And so you can have a system of trays that you put the feedstock in and then the, the insects and, um, you can raise it as small scale as that. And it's really fairly rudimentary, um, mechanics and in insect agriculture is, is thousands of years old, mostly, you know, in, in Southeast Asia. And it's been very, um, low tech, if you will. And so, as we as we scale these facilities around, our, our goal is to address some of the largest uh, culprits of of organics going into landfills, contributing to significantly to global greenhouse gas emissions. And so, we would like to scale around uh, scale a solution around the magnitude of problems that that are currently here. And so, a large scale facility is that's why I said initially modular. And so. Um, it's just a really a system of trays where you're growing these insects, and um, there is a there's a, a temptation to really um, focus on the mechanization and the automation of of these farming systems. But we've taken more of a, a focus on developing the biology and and really how can we get out of their way and how can we rather than control this life system, how can we optimize their life system? So how can we optimize the feed and the, the beneficial microbes that are contained within the insect? How can we, um, how can we help promote those? So an example is, you know, we found host specific bacteria and fungi within the, within that ecosystem of microbes that's contained in larva. How can we isolate some of those and then apply them to the feedstock prior to them consuming? And then, increase the nutrient availability to the larva, et cetera. But it's all working within what nature has already provided us. And um, it's it's an exercise in humility of, of getting out of the way of nature as opposed to trying to control it. I love the idea of getting out of the way of nature. I'm going to change direction here a little bit. You know, the crux of our conversation is the why behind what you do. You mentioned your experience with the Native Americans and your background and your education also but you know what what drove you to start chapul chapul farms and what keeps you going what's the why behind what you do yeah 
I mean, really, it was the the benefit of of future generations, and I was very concerned of um, the the path that we've laid, and I I just couldn't, you know, I was aware of the problems that we've created, and I just couldn't sleep at night without contributing to solutions in terms of, you know, as a water scientist, I I know how fast our freshwater sources are being depleted. And I, I had to do something to address that. And that's what kind of led me into agriculture. And that's what at the time, you know, working, working on in the uh, public sector, I was, I, I, I had a mounting frustration with um, the conservation efforts that I was doing and the, the opposition that market forces were creating to to conservation and conservation plans and strategies that we would develop, and so that was one of the impetuses for starting to pool and, and la- launching a, a company in the private sector was how do we create a market force for conservation and and longer term focus of of the benefit of of those that will come after us, and and so that was that was the motivation was seeing what what I can do with this time I have on the planet and, and how can I have the most impact? Um, Cause I, I think it's, you know, the more time you spend in, in the grand Canyon looking at geology or, or looking up into the stars, the, the more insignificant you feel, but at the same time, the, the, the sillier it seems to try and amass financial wealth on a, on a planet that's potentially dying. And, and I don't, I don't have any, I think that's essentially become a superpower of mine is trying to navigate these you know, you know capital markets of you know, how do we allocate mass financial wealth into the the development of very beneficial projects but not really having any personal desire for amassing it myself <laughs> <laughs> we're all on temporary visas yeah exactly exactly yeah, I appreciate that so what are some of the valuable lessons that you've learned on your journey with Chapul, Chapul Farms, and doing what you're doing. Oh my goodness! I, I we need a we need a much longer time frame to share <laughs> what I've learned. It's just every day. This is long form. No worries. Yeah, yeah. Uh, every day there's there's new things being learned, and I, I that's that's what really keeps me in in it for you know all of the the challenges and frustrations, just the, the development that happens, and the fascination is endless. I mean, even. From when we were introducing insect protein to many people for the first time, we were blowing people's minds, and we were met with a considerable amount of opposition. And um, you know, the I always deem it the, the funny-looking face when somebody kind of curls their upper lip at you when you ask them to try eating insects for the first time, and uh, that that wears on you over time. People constantly, you know, saying, "Oh, that's disgusting. Why would you ever do that?" Um, it, it, but I think, um, yeah, just just that, like every early in the early days of Chapul, you know, we, we would have that kind of opposition. But then maybe one out of every ten would would get the bigger picture vision of of what we were doing, and and they would say, you know, uh, thank you for what you're doing. We we really, I sincerely appreciate what you're doing, and and that's that really drove us. And I I started Chapul eight years ago, and in that time. I have I have also become a father now, and so I have I have two little ones, um, and and now seeing their faces has really highlighted. Um, it's it's it, it, 
it's put a face to um, the the future, and and that is is absolutely what drives me now. Not just for them, but you know the, their children and their their children's children, and um, that that's what drives me far more than anything. And I you know, I can I'm here for several more decades. I'm gonna passionately work towards er- everything I can do to maintaining a, or, or progressing towards a, a livable future for them that has the basic necessities of food and water. You know, it's not. Uh, everything else is noise, but uh, if if our children can't eat, they can't breathe, and they can't consume water, then um, then everything else is is for naught. Agreed. And since you mentioned the future, magic wand twenty twenty five. What does the future hold for Chapul? Oh, the future holds uh, both in terms of our development. We we have currently we're we're working on some pretty large projects of of converting some waste streams here in the United States into to large uh, infrastructure projects for for raising insect larvae and then in going into aquafeed is the largest market that we're entering right now, um, and, and poultry as well. Uh, and so our development will in five years have. Um, you know, optimistically significantly increased, but also it, we would like to be in kind of from day one of even the energy bar company want to be a, a catalyst for the, the magnitude of change that's required in terms of uh, diverting our course of, of lack of biodiversity. And so there's, there's just inspiring projects all over, whether that's, you know, mycelium or, or algae and, and looking at the other kingdoms of life on this planet. It's I sometimes I get frustrated with what seems like the a, a trivial a binary discussion of, of plants versus animals when it, it's really neglects the the magnitude of impact that bacteria and fungi and the critical role that they play uh, on life on this planet and insects of course as well. And um, we would like to be a, a catalyst for um, the, the development of, of many different life forms and, and the in systems integration and ecosystem services that are absolutely critical to life on this planet. Uh, I love the vision. I'd be remiss not to ask you the name Chapul. Where does it come from? So I, I grew up in, in Arizona and uh, I lots of time spent in Mexico as well. And, and uh, the the cultural border is, is less definitive than the political border. And so I, uh, the, the name Chapul is a, a Nahuatl language of the Aztec word, but uh, also prominent in, in modern culture in, in Mexico to mean grasshopper. Uh, and so they, they eat Chapulinas currently in, in the Oaxaca region of, of Mexico. It's a really, it's a delicacy uh, there. And, and, and then there's anthropological evidence of, of the Aztecs, uh, taking grasshoppers and uh, drying them in the sun and then using stone tools to to grind them down to a powder. And so it was, it was a call out to to them and, and their appreciation of, of some of that kind of basic technology that we used for, for our process initially of taking the insects and drying them out and then grinding them down to a powder for, for people to consume. Oh, I like that shout out to them. And speaking of people curling their mouth at the idea of insects, I don't know if you saw the video recently of our CEO, Ben Hubbard, drinking your Chapul powder on LinkedIn. Oh, no, I didn't. I'll have to check that out. Check that out. <laughs> Does he curl his <laughs> lip? Nope. He, he drank it and he said he liked it. So there oh, you good. go. Oh, good. Good. 
<laughs> so Pat, I'd like to end with this question. If you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? Um, I, I would just, I would actually regurgitate some, some learnings kind of go, let's circle back to some lessons learned from, from the Hopi and, uh, you know, they, they have an ancestral belief, uh, that they're, the Kachinas, previous generations, reside in, in clouds and in such an arid environment that uh, they they call the Kachinas to to come and, and give water and, and essentially life to this current generation. And, and the way that they call them often is through through laughter and, and dance. And so uh, it's it's critical that they are are maintaining a positive attitude and, and laughing and dancing even in and most critically in the most trying of circumstances and the harshest of droughts and in the face of famine and i think that has been helpful for me and in the face of significant changes and and, and challenges that we face for inevitable climate massive changes to our climate and what that's going to do for um our our civilizations that it's important it's it's critical to maintain a positive attitude even in the face of such uh scary scary changes that are coming our way and um that that would be one of my piece of advice is to maintain a positive attitude and one of hope and a message of hope uh no matter what you're working on to to uh exude that in everything that you're doing if you're if you're focusing on a positive impact well i believe you said they've occupied that piece of land for 800 years so the laughing and dancing seems to have contributed to their resiliency too i i think so yeah i i think so and it's certainly the learnings that i've uh taken with me that certainly contributed to my resiliency and the ability to laugh through all those curled lips has has helped my (laughs) maintain my passion so i can only speak for myself but it, it certainly helped with with my uh endurance through it all well, Pat, thank you so much. And is there anything I should have asked you before we go that I did not? Um, is there anything you should have asked me? Um, I, I don't think so. I think that's uh, that's pretty comprehensive. I, I think I got across the kind of high level, but also some of the tangible as well. So. Well, Pat, I appreciate your time, and I look forward to seeing the continued growth of Chapul Farms and catching up with you again soon. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much, Roger. It was a pleasure speaking thank you. with you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.